Food security is a daily challenge for millions of Americans, but the COVID-19 pandemic has exacerbated a myriad of issues for those same people and the stakeholders who work with them. Keep America Fed is a podcast miniseries through which we'll look at those issues and how they're being addressed locally and at the state and federal level. Today, we're talking with Lisa Smith and Maria Boyle. Lisa is a deputy director of Neighbors in Need, a nonprofit that operates food and diaper pantries that serve more than 1,000 families in Greater Lawrence, Massachusetts. She has a background in community organizing, volunteer management, and resource development. Maria is a senior associate here at APT. She has over 20 years of experience working on programs, policies, research studies, and evaluations related to nutrition, food security, and food assistance programs. Thank you both for joining me. Thanks, Eric. Thank you. What a, what a great opportunity. Lisa, let's start with you. Uh, tell us a little bit about what Neighbors in Need does and, uh, and what's been working for you as you struggle with COVID. Excellent. Thanks, Eric. Uh, we are a, a, a small nonprofit serving uh, Lawrence, Massachusetts and the surrounding area. Um, Lawrence is one of the most hardest hit areas of Massachusetts um, with COVID infection rates, um, some of the highest in, in the state of Massachusetts. And um, what we do here is that we operate 13 local food pantries, um, which are um, mostly our walking distance for many of our clients. Um, we try to um, have a pantry within a half mile walk for anyone in a low income census tract within the city of Lawrence, um, because most of our folks here in Lawrence are, uh, uh, don't have a lot of access to transportation. Only about 50% of Lawrence residents have access to a, to a vehicle. Mm -hmm. um, so we operate, um, uh, small uh, food pantries, uh, and we also operate a, a diaper pantry. Our food pantries serve about a thousand families each week. We focus on providing um, fresh fruits and vegetables as well as other uh, staples in our food pantries. Um, part of what's been working for us in uh, in the last few months is that we were able to nip very quickly change our uh, change our model from uh, a model where people came in and chose the the food that they wanted. Clients are now uh, coming and picking up supplies in our food pantry in a grab-and-go bag. So we went from a choice pantry model to a grab-and-go food pantry model where we're, we have a large number of volunteers coming in and packing uh, food on a regular basis, and then those supplies are going out to our clients. Um, so the, our, our ability to quickly um, switch models in March has really helped us serve a greater number of people during the pandemic. Um, we've also gotten great uh, support uh, here in Massachusetts at the uh, local and state level. Um, the state of Massachusetts has uh, put a lot of supplies into providing food, um, both uh, through the food banks, as well as through uh, resources for food pantries to uh, increase capacity and make some improvements, um, and as well as uh, provided for additional staff support in other ways. Um, so we think those are some things that have worked well for us. That's great. I'm going to ask Maria sort of how that aligns with what she's seen in other states. But then let me also ask you, Lisa, um, what are some of the challenges that you've had to grapple with and are still grappling with maybe? Yeah, so um, a, a big thing that COVID did was sort of highlight and um, uh, highlight and create additional barriers for the, for the folks in our neighborhoods who need food the most. Um, so again, a uh, Things like transportation, uh, people were afraid to take public transit and may just now be um, coming out to, to trust the public buses or other, you know, taxis or whatever forms of transportation they were using to get to grocery stores. Um, food is not as um, available in um, 
urban settings, oftentimes, especially in, in Lawrence, um, we, we have um, sort of a food desert. Um, the access to food got much worse um, during the COVID mm -hmm. pandemic. Um, and there weren't as many uh, disaster um, plans in place. So in, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, um, I know some of our clients were not able to access the resources they needed as quickly as they, they wanted to. Another challenge for us has been um, consistent access to food supply um, at a larger level. So the, the, the food supply coming from the food banks and other places has been up and down. Um, getting donations has, was a challenge um, just to have the volunteers sort and process donations. And uh, as well as just sort of the food availability. So just as many of us went to the grocery store and there wasn't meat on the shelves um, or other supplies like rice and beans um, or formula or diapers, our clients also found those needs and, and didn't have as many places to turn to to have those needs met. Um, so uh, I think some those have been some of the challenges we've been facing. Mm -hmm. Right, and the cost of the food as well, right? I mean, we've been hearing that, you know, sort of across all income levels that the cost of food has become an issue as well as the availability, right? It just from the grocery stores. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Now mm -hmm. you're seeing food costs rise even, you know, they're, they're even higher. It's it's an, uh, one other, you know, an additional barrier for our clients, especially because we know our clients are also being hit by layoffs and other economic right. um, uh, economic issues that um, are going to last for a long time. So yeah, it's a full whammy. And do you feel like you've been able to serve everyone that's needed? Or do you feel like there's still a lot of gaps, you know, around who you've been able to serve the families or seniors or, you know? Yes. It's, it's very hard to tell. I, I, we've definitely, our numbers yeah. have increased um, steadily increased since the, since the beginning of the pandemic um, with the warm weather and with, uh, rate infection rates dropping somewhat. I think clients are now starting to feel more comfortable coming out. But elderly clients and clients that are, are of high risk, um, uh, clients with young children who uh, may not easily get to the food pantries, I think that there's still um, a big demand uh, for food in those areas. And it's really hard to get um, food out to people who can't readily get to the pantries. We've increased our capacity for those. We, we are now doing that. We've never done deliveries or maybe if we did, yeah. there were a handful of deliveries that volunteers would, you know, take some food bags from one of the pantries they were serving at and drop off. I'm now doing uh, somewhere between 60 and 75 deliveries a week. Um, these are mostly to clients that are elderly or high risk. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I, I think that's something we're going to have to maintain uh, for a long time. I'm not sure how, you know, that, that's, that's dependent on a team of volunteers who can come and pick up the bags and take right. them to clients. And as the rest of us kind of get back to work and go back to school and do all those things we haven't done for the last four months, you know, I worry a little bit about our ability to continue to provide those right. services. Right. Um, also, you know, I also am interested to see a lot of our families are part of the, the public school system. And so yep. know those families are also getting supplies through um, school lunches. So as um, school has ended and um, summer programs have started, I know that food's still available, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm curious to see how families are making that transition right. taking part of those programs. And, um, and also uh, we know some benefits of EBT electronic benefits uh, associated with the SNAP program were made available to families that were participating in the school lunch um, program. So I don't, you know, I don't know how many of those families took advantage of that. And um, it would be good to gather that data and other data to see um, 
any kind of data that we can get to see how uh, families are um, are making use of uh, federal and state and local benefits around food would be really incredibly helpful for us because it's mm-hmm. a little bit of a black box. You know, we're we're seeing increased demand, right? Um, and you know, we're trying to do some different things like the deliveries, but it would be great to be able to kind of pull back the curtains a little bit and look at it right. more closely to see where the holes are. Well, and how would that help you? Would that help you be able to like if that kind of data was available, like? you know, food security rates in Lawrence, like who was being served by the different programs. Would that help you then to be able to target your services better? Is that what you're thinking? It is what I'm, yes, exactly, yeah. Maria. I think, yeah. I think um, the challenge in Lawrence is that we've got a we've got a nice blanket of social services and we're all yeah. actually one of the one of the things that's been working well also is that we've been managed to work to well together as a group in the whole. So we have been meeting as large nonprofits um, or as nonprofits locally, as well as on the state level being, and and, and that's been um, a, a really excellent tool for communication. But mm. the, the best the best thing that we could all know is where the holes are. It was the question before COVID. And now again, it, you know, the COVID's just highlighted all the need, needs that we've seen in our community. Right. And people are, are even having less chance to connect with each other and to connect with the social services where they might be able to find the resources they need. So, you know, it, it was critical information previous and it's, you know, it's even more critical now. Right. If you have limited, you know, resources and a limited amount of food, uh, probably research can kind of, you know, that sort of information can help you prioritize, like who needs the food you know, not only like where the gaps are, but I help you to prioritize where you put your resources as well. So, um, you know, again, with sort of a limited supply of available food, given the demand that's out there right now. So, Maria, is that something that we could help provide, get, gathering that data and disseminating that data? Yeah, you know, I think we're sort of trying to think about different ways that, you know, given our expertise in food security research and research on food assistance programs, you know, what, what are some of the types of information that um, that we could gather that would sort of help programs like leases um, and also just, you know, help inform the broader community in terms of food security data, you know, where are, even if it's not kind of community focused, like specific, for example, with Lisa to Lawrence, but, you know, sort of more broadly uh, across communities, these are the populations that are falling through the gaps. These are the families that are not being served by school meals, or even, you know, a lot of school meal programs have done, you know, as Lisa knows, they've now sort of done this new process where you can go and just pick up your meal at the school district and families can do that. And I think there's a lot of questions around, you know, are they serving the same amount of families? Are they serving less? Are they serving more? You know, and how does, as Lisa mentioned, sort of how does some of those programs help fill in gaps that emergency food assistance can't. Um, and then are they, are those programs, um, what's happening in the summer even? You know, typically there are a number of summer programs that kind of take over, but, you know, schools are still serving those foods in the summer. So, and then there are the summer programs. And I think there's not a clear understanding of uh, what's happened and all the changes because it's been so rapid. So I think you know, that kind of information and research would be really useful. Like, I think in particular, if there was some sort of like food security monitoring system that, you know, was available, like, um, 
you know, on a local basis or on a state basis. Yeah, I, I know here in Lawrence, we've been uh, for the over the last uh, almost two years now or longer, we've been trying to do a community food assessment. Um, it kind of gets at that question of, you know, yeah. where are our gaps? And I, I do think one of the challenges with COVID is that so many more people are not interacting with the services they might or being able right. to seek services. Um, and that, you know, I, I, you know, I wonder if when kids get back to school in the fall, we're going to have a whole new range of issues we have to respond to that we didn't, we didn't even know, or families that were off the radar that are now suddenly on the radar or, you know, any right. number of issues. I think, I think research and best practices, you know, looking mm. at what's going on, um, in other communities, you know, what, what, especially now. So we know if, if we know if COVID's going on for another 18 months or two years or whatever it is. And after COVID, there'll be another kind of disaster. I mean, there are a number of these things, but as right. hopefully not, <laughs> but, um, but, you know, like ha having an, a national organization or organizations that are paying attention to things that are bubbling up across the United States and being able mm -hmm. to funnel that back to organizations doing the work is, is critical. I know a couple of times, especially early on, I found myself uh, Googling and looking at what was going on in Washington state, because I thought, okay, I don't know how, you know, they were only six weeks ahead of us or but still, four weeks ahead yeah. of us. But at the time there was nobody else. So the more that we can figure that out, what, what those best practices are and how right. we can share that information is in incredibly helpful. I think to people like, Neighbors in Need and other smaller organizations. Mm -hmm. This is all data that we could be collecting and analyzing, right? That we could be helping to disseminate, to, to identify those best practices, right? Yes, exactly. Yes, we could definitely be doing something like that, like collecting best practices. I think, um, you know, I think there's also a lot of opportunity to look at how to um, best practices around quickly pivoting. Lisa, that's something I've been thinking about, too, as communities open up and then they shut down and they open up and, you know, sort of what are models as to, you know, what have communities put in place to kind of quickly respond in those situations? You know, the schools open, everybody's serving lunch or, you know, there's more um, people are starting to go back and have more in-person services, but then things shut down again as the COVID numbers go up. So how can, you know, how can food programs, food assistance programs make those um, pivots quickly? And I think that kind of information, those kinds of best practices could also be really interesting. I was going to ask Lisa, if you had any tips, you said that you felt like you pivoted um, successfully to a new model. Any tips that you would share to listeners about how you made that transition? In the food pantry, we definitely have places like the food banks that are helping get the word out or helping us understand, you know, it was, but it was definitely piecemeal. Like, you know, first we had to understand we were essential, right? So when mm. everything was <laughs> shut down, does that mean we're shut down, right? You know, right. so things got defined really quickly, but I think um, work like work from your groups, your like from groups like yours or others could be really helpful in making sure those definitions, like I, the one that are, are sort of, that states understand what they need to have to flow back and forth. So, mm -hmm. you know, early on, we were wait, literally waiting for federal legislation to pass to allow WIC to work remotely. And until the Senate passed the Families First, Corona First, I can't remember, but until yep. that legislation passed, there was no permission, there was no permission granted. So states were, it was really a hodgepodge mixture of, of, um, 
of information that was trickling down to the states about how to handle this. But if there were there was an organization or organizations that were advocating and putting forward those policy recommendations on a state level that were then working with the local organizations to make sure that they had those plans in place if that ever had to happen again. You know, I keep coming back to the schools piece because I feel like it's the part that has been most visible in all of this and how the schools really, you know, schools shut down one day and then they realized, oh, they still have to feed, there are all these children that they feed every single day and where, you know, schools are really, they can be, they can provide really the nutrition for two thirds of a day for, you know, for children, if children get both breakfast and lunch at school. So they are a pretty important source of nutrition, a source of food. And so schools, you know, I think, again, I think that's something that would be interesting in terms of best practices and models and what made schools be able to pivot those that did, because they did it very quickly in some areas, in some school districts where they immediately started giving out free meals to everybody. But I think, you know, again, pulling out what worked, um, numbers served, that kind of information would be really useful, you know, just so that we all have an understanding of all the pieces that went into making those kinds of quick changes to delivery models. Right. Well, that that's maybe a good place to stop because next month we're, we're going to talk to uh, maybe at the state level and, um, and maybe we'll get some more data there. But it sounds like we all agree we need to know more. Yeah. And I, I think next month we're hoping to talk a little bit more detail about what some of the specific federal food programs have done, um, you know, and what's happening and maybe what's not happening with those on the state and local levels. So that'll be great. All right. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Lisa. Yeah, great. Thank you. And, uh, and thank you out there for listening to this app podcast. (laughs) 